Hello, I'm Alex Akavon, and you're listening to May It Please the Court. On June 12, 2017, Pew Research Center published that 17% of newlyweds these days were married to a person of a different race or ethnicity. One in seven babies today are considered multiracial or multiethnic. Generally speaking, we see interracial married couples everywhere in modern society. And yet, in a lot of U.S. states... Interracial marriage was illegal until as recently as 1967. The clip you heard was the voice of Mildred Loving, the wife of a man named Richard Loving. The two had been sweethearts ever since their high school days in Central Point, Virginia. In June 1958, when Mildred was 18 years old, the couple decided to get married. But the problem was that their marriage was a crime. The Virginia Racial Integrity Act of 1924 had expressly forbidden the marital union of any white person to a non-white person. Richard Loving was white, and Mildred was part black, part Native American. When the police found out they were living together in violation of the law, they raided the Loving's home and arrested them both. Desperate for help, Mildred wrote the U.S. Attorney General at the time, President JFK's younger brother, Robert Kennedy. Kennedy referred them to the ACLU, who found them legal representation. But the loving story would be about more than two individuals and their marriage in Virginia. And it would be about more than laws that discriminate against African Americans. It would be about every individual's right to marry the person they choose. Just two years after Estelle Griswold had brought substantive due process back to life, the Supreme Court would hear another case about fundamental rights. A case that would decide whether the state of Virginia could constitutionally stop a person from loving someone. It was the case of Loving versus Virginia. Around 2 a.m. on July 11, 1958, two police officers, acting on an anonymous tip, arrived at Richard and Mildred Loving's house to arrest them. 
They stormed into the couple's bedroom and found them together asleep. The sheriff looked at Richard and asked, Who is this woman? Mildred responded, I'm his wife. Hastily, she pulled out the marriage certificate they had gotten from Washington, D.C., where interracial couples could get married. But the officer wasn't having it. It was illegal for whites and blacks to be married in Virginia. The law could not be circumvented by traveling to a different jurisdiction. And so, despite how they got their marriage certificate, the Lovings were arrested for cohabiting as man and wife against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth. Richard spent the night in jail. Mildred, who was pregnant at the time, was locked up for over a week. At their trial, they pleaded guilty, which carried a sentence of one year in prison. The state offered them a deal, though which they accepted, to suspend the sentence but be banished from the state of Virginia for 25 years. And so the Lovings moved to Washington, D.C., where they lived in exile. On some occasions, they did cross the border back into Virginia to see their family, but they did so while constantly having to look over their shoulders for police. After years of living this way, Mildred wrote that letter to Robert Kennedy and got in touch with two attorneys named Bernard Cohen and Philip Hirchkopf. The two accepted the Lovings' case and started the legal path towards the Supreme Court. It was a long, difficult road. Cases were filed in state court, then in federal court, then back in state court. Finally, In April 1967, nine years after they were initially arrested, the Loving team had its chance to argue to the Supreme Court. Cohen and Hirchkopf had been preparing for this moment for a long time. They worked for the American Civil Liberties Union, and the freedom to marry was an integral part of their cause. But like the legal team in Griswold, Cohen and Hirchkopf had to consider a variety of approaches if they were going to secure the legalization of interracial marriage nationwide. So where do you start? Well, the obvious argument was in the Equal Protection Clause, which comes after the Due Process Clause in the 14th Amendment and guarantees the equal protection of the laws for all citizens. Put simply, they could argue that the Virginia Racial Integrity Law unconstitutionally discriminated based on race. And the truth is that that argument might have been enough. If the main goal was to allow the Lovings to marry legally, it didn't really matter what part of the Constitution the court used. But Cohen and Hirchkopf wanted to hedge their bets. Plus, they were also concerned that if the court struck down the law only based on equal protection, finding it discriminatory for grouping people into whites and non-whites, Virginia might be able to find some sort of workaround and pass a law that has more ambiguous language, but still effectively restricts interracial marriage. So the Loving team looked for a broader message. This was not just about discrimination. This law violated our basic liberty to marry the person we choose. It wasn't just about treating whites and non-whites differently. 
It was about the government telling its citizens who they are allowed to marry. And only two years earlier, the Supreme Court had said that contraception bans for married couples deprive citizens of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. Doesn't marriage seem like it should be part of that fundamental right to privacy? In addition to preparing these oral arguments, Cohen and Hirchkopf invited a third lawyer to join them, a Japanese-American man named William Maritani. The plan was that Hirchkopf would take the lead on the equal protection argument, while Maritani would take a pragmatic approach and discuss how the Virginia law is really unjustifiable and designed only to promote white superiority. Meanwhile... Bernard Cohen took the lead on the due process argument. His job was to use the Griswold approach and argue that the Virginia law had deprived the Lovings of a fundamental right, like the contraception bans had done. So here we were again. For the second time in two years, the Supreme Court was hearing a case that involved the 14th Amendment's due process clause. But the issue was a little different than the contraception issue. This time, an entire race was being kept separate from another. Estelle Griswold's lawyers didn't have as strong of an equal protection argument as the Lovings had. In the 2016 Oscar-nominated movie Loving, which tells Mildred and Richard's personal story, there's a scene where Bernard Cohen's character asks his client what he would like to say to the Supreme Court. Mr. Loving simply responds, Tell them I love my wife. Here's the clip of the real Bernard Cohen telling the real Supreme Court during oral arguments what Mr. Loving had said and how this everyday person's point of view sums up the fundamental rights argument better than Cohen ever could. As I started to say before, no matter how we articulate this, no matter which theory of the due process clause or which emphasis we attach to, no one can articulate it better than Richard Loving when he said to me, Mr. Cohen, tell the court I love my wife and it is just unfair that I can't live with her in Virginia. I think this uh, very simple layman has a concept of fundamental fairness and ordered liberty that he can articulate as a bricklayer that we hope this court has set out time and time again in its decisions on the due process clause. But despite this heartfelt appeal to the fundamental rights doctrine, Cohen ran into the same issue that Professor Emerson did. The fact that Justice Hugo Black hated substantive due process ever since the 1930s, when he helped bring an end to the Lochner era. Black had not changed his mind about the doctrine and had voted against the recognition of a fundamental right to privacy. But with that said, he did not support interracial marriage bans either. Black sympathized with the Lovings, but he really wanted to keep their lawyer, Cohen, in the equal protection lane. Here's an exchange between the two of them 
When Black tries to get Cohen to admit that this case can be resolved without resorting to substantive due process reasoning. Cohen, meanwhile, toes the line very carefully, because he would absolutely accept a ruling based only on equal protection if it helped his clients, but he also wanted to give the due process argument his best shot. Yeah, I see you are arguing the due process question on the theory that even if the court holds it violates the equal protection clause, it's necessary to go on and reach the broad expanses you mentioned. Your Honor, we should be very pleased to have a decision from this court that all of these statutes are unconstitutional based upon the Equal Protection Clause. No problem, that that's would your settle Honor. It, it? Yes, I think it that would. That would settle it constitutionally. I believe it would. Cohen was careful. If the Supreme Court struck down the interracial marriage law based solely on the Equal Protection Clause, then so be it. As long as they strike the law down. You're listening to May It Please the Court. Once the loving team sat down... It was time for the government of Virginia to argue its case. They were represented by a man named Robert McElwain III. Or should I say, Robert McElwain III. McElwain had his eyes on Justice Black, the one who everyone knew opposed substantive due process. In this next clip, you can hear how he sweet-talks Justice Black a bit by quoting Black's own words to him about due process. We would sum up the argument which we have made on behalf of the legislative history of the 14th Amendment by referring to a statement of Mr. Justice Black in his dissenting opinion in the recent case of South Carolina against Katzenbach. Two sentences which read as follows. I see no reason to read into the Constitution meanings it did not have when it was adopted and which have not been put into it since. The proceedings of the original Constitutional Convention show beyond all doubt that the power to veto a negative state laws was denied Congress. But the thing about Justice Black is that even though he clearly opposed broad interpretations of the Due Process Clause, he was not particularly warm to the state of Virginia's arguments about why it's okay to stop whites from marrying non-whites. McElwain had pointed to scientific and psychological studies, all of which supposedly justified anti-miscegenation laws. But Justice Black saw right through them. This next clip is an exchange between McElwain and Black, where Black tells him to put aside all the so-called studies And just be honest, the Virginia law was really designed to ensure white superiority over non-whites, which is exactly what the 14th Amendment was created to stop. So despite having his own words quoted back at him, Black bluntly leveled with Mr. McElwain. May I ask you this question, aside from all questions of genetics, psychology, psychiatry, sociology, and everything else, aside from all that, forgetting it for the moment. Is there any doubt in your mind that the 
object of these statutes, the basic premise on which they rest, is that the white people are superior to the colored people and should not be permitted to marry. Is the common sense and pragmatics of it not that it's a result of the old slavery days? The motivation and the old feeling that the white man was superior to the colored man, which was exactly what the 14th Amendment was adopted to prevent. Loving would be one of Justice Black's last landmark decisions. On June 12, 1967, which is now remembered as Loving Day, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Richard and Mildred Loving. And the decision was unanimous. Justices William Douglas, Tom Clark, William Brennan, Byron White, Abe Fortas, Potter Stewart, Hugo Black, and John Marshall Harlan II all joined Chief Justice Earl Warren, who wrote the opinion. Chief Justice Warren had also written Brown v. Board of Education, and through Loving, he added yet another landmark civil rights case to his legacy. Thirteen years after desegregating public schools, the Supreme Court struck down all interracial marriage bans nationwide. And most critically, they did so using both the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Chief Justice Warren ruled that the Virginia Racial Integrity Act unconstitutionally discriminated on the basis of race and that the Lovings were deprived of a fundamental right. In other words, the government was both treating black people unequally and denying every individual's right to marry a person of a different race. Now, Justice Black likely did not love the part about fundamental rights. It was pretty clear in oral arguments that the Equal Protection Clause was enough for the Lovings to win. But ultimately, he signed on to Warren's opinion and didn't write his own. Black would manage to leave behind a legacy that many people today would have mixed feelings about. He had voted against legalizing contraception nationwide, And yet, his name is next to Chief Justice Warren's on two of the most important civil rights cases of all time. What does remain pretty clear, though, is his disagreement with substantive due process. He did not believe in using the 14th Amendment to strike down state laws based on the judiciary's interpretation of liberty. This philosophy, once upon a time, was very attractive to progressive politicians but the 1960s would shake up the foundations of American society and redraw the battle lines. By 1967, the Supreme Court's official position became that the Due Process Clause does in fact protect certain liberties. Not a liberty to contract, but a fundamental right to privacy and a fundamental right to marry someone of a different race. At the exact same time, America's political parties started to drastically change their platforms. When the 60s began, Republicans were, and had been, the party for civil rights since the days of Abraham Lincoln, while Democrats had historically pushed for a state's right to segregate. 
But as President JFK and his successor, Lyndon Johnson, started supporting civil rights and voting rights legislation, a sharp split formed within the Democratic Party. And on the same night that the court decided the Loving case, Justice Tom Clark officially retired. The very next day, June 13th, 1967, President Johnson announced that he would be nominating none other than Thurgood Marshall to replace him. The man who had argued Brown versus Board of Education was now going to be the first black justice on the Supreme Court. Starting in the 60s, Democrats would gradually market themselves more and more as the party for civil rights, while Republicans would generally become more vocal about states' rights. And all of a sudden, liberals, who used to hate substantive due process during the Lochner era, were starting to find it very useful after it had led to the complete legalization of contraception for married couples and now interracial marriage. The Supreme Court that had once been an obstacle to economic change now started to become a catalyst for social progress. But this new trend of judicial activism was only just starting to build momentum. As the sexual revolution and women's liberation movements marched on, the stage was set for perhaps the most controversial Supreme Court case in recent history. The case of Roe v. Wade. Tune in next week for episode 6 and the story of how a young woman just out of law school managed to convince the Supreme Court to protect a woman's right to privacy. A woman's right to choice. May It Please the Court is produced by Untwist the Facts. Check out our website at www.untwistthefacts.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Untwist the Facts. I'm Alex Akavon, and thanks so much for listening.